Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. This episode is brought to you by Gilt. So when it comes to building wealth, taxes are such a big part of the strategy. And even if you're already filed, being proactive about this year to lower your future liability is so important. Gelt actually provides a proactive approach to tax strategy, combining innovative technology and expert CPAs by creating personalized tax strategies for your unique financial needs of multiple revenue streams, M&As, restricted stocks, various investments and more. You can keep your hard-earned money. Our, their proprietary platform ultimately gives you the full transparency of your tax management and direct communication with your CPA to reach your financial goals and grow for your wealth faster. So again, you know, if you're interested in this, go to joingelt.com. Uh, and they are actually on the show notes that I'm going to be posting a very special offer for you all that you can actually enjoy. So again, you know, join Gelt. All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So more stories today, you know, building, scaling, financing, and all the above, all the good stuff that we like to hear. You know, in this case, you know, he got started at 11 years old with his dad. So talk about, you know, starting and just doing it. So uh, again, you know, we're going to find his uh, story very inspiring. And again, you know, all about the hyper growth stuff, especially on the deal-making side, too, that we love to hear. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Keith Paris. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Excited to be here. So originally, you were born in Ontario, Canada. And, uh, you know, your parents were originally from Sri Lanka. So I'm sure that, uh, you know, they, they like cricket and all the good stuff that, uh, that they like, you know, back there. But uh, how was life growing up uh, in, in Canada? I mean, Canada was was incredible. You know, I uh, my, my parents moved there in the eighties. Uh, you know, during the Civil War, and they just wanted me to have access to to a good education. Uh, so, you know, just like every good Canadian kid, uh, I played ice hockey growing up. You know, learned a lot about the, about life. You know, being the smallest kid on the ice naturally, and uh, got really into computer science early. Just to say that uh, my dad made it all the way from you know, delivering pizzas early on, sort of the first thing he did when he landed, to uh, managing and you know sales at an IT company, and uh, because of that, you know he was always bringing computers home. Uh, you know at that, that time, computers were thousands of dollars, so having access to to one was, was felt really special. And uh, you know around the age of eight or so, he um, he brought home this really powerful computer. Uh, and a book on how to use Adobe Photoshop, and uh, you know, you could argue that was that was maybe the the, the start of something new. <laughs> That's amazing. I'm sure that for you, you know, also to see your parents, you know, coming here. I mean, here to Canada, you know, new life, you know, a, a better life that they were looking to to build to for for the family. I'm sure that that was very inspiring to you as well. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, we. Uh, we're brought up thinking that we have to sort of outwork uh, the, the folks around us and fight for every inch. And I think that's it's still true today. 
Now, now in your in your case, eleven years old. That's when you know the whole business, you know, craziness, you know, knocks on the door. So, so what happened there with your dad? Yeah. So, uh, like I said, you know, he got me this computer and a, and a book on Photoshop. And I think, to be honest, the first version of Photoshop I had was a little bootlegged. And uh, it, you know, it, it, I I would come home after school and play around with this. I would play manipulate photos. I would make sort of websites and interfaces. And uh, at the time, this is when internet forums were becoming a thing. You know, I think this was uh, sort of early 2000s. Uh, and I would put my work up on forums to try to get critique, advice. I'd ask them how to do effects, how to do different things in Photoshop and in Flash. And uh, uh, after a while, some people started to message me on these forums and ask, Hey, could could you make a website for me, or could you make a flash animation for me? And uh, you know, at the, at the time I, I was doing it, I, I opened a PayPal account. I'd charge just enough to be able to buy video games and toys. And uh, you know, one one day my my dad came home and and he was like, "Well, what what are you doing?" I'm like, "I'm making a website for this person. You know, I'm, ch I'm charging uh, two hundred and fifty dollars so I can buy an Xbox." And um, you know, he started to look at this and he was like, "Wait a minute." You should be charging a lot more than two hundred and fifty dollars for this kind of thing. Uh, so he he opens up my, uh, my my direct messages and he realizes there's like ten of these these people asking for websites. Uh, so so we had a back and forth about it, and um, you know my dad had already been sold on the internet as the future, right? When you're selling computers, you're you're in these, these CIO groups and they're talking about this like what is this web thing that's happening and. Um, he was like, you know, we should start a website company. You, you know, in, in Canada at the time, it felt very sort of rare uh, to, to have website companies. And all of these companies knew that they needed a web presence. So, uh, you know, he decided he was like, I should be the CEO because I, I sort of brought the technical talent. And, uh, you know, he would run uh, the, the sales and marketing. So the, the first thing, you know, he did was we, uh, we, we got the basement renovated. We bought some computers. We, we moved into the, the, the basements and, uh, then, you know, he started to pitch, um, customers of the IT company he worked at. And, you know, I would start to respond to people on, on forums on, on the internet. And, uh, we were actually able to, uh, to, to drive quite a bit of, of, of growth of, of, of a website design company. <laughs> now, now in this case, I mean, at 11, I mean, what, what, what did you learn about pitching tool? Yeah, it's a, it's a good prompt. You know, when, when you're an agency, which is what we were, you, you're, you're constantly pitching, right? You're, you're showing up at people's offices and you need to, to, to dazzle and shine you know, within the, the, the first 30 minutes because um, you never want to win on price, right? It's sort of a race to the bottom. So my dad taught me everything about, first of all, you have to compose emails this way. You have sort of have to uh, pitch, you know, leading with the, the sizzle first and getting to the operations later. And, um, you know, my, my dad sort of encouraged me to lean into the, the novelty of the fact that I was 11. Uh, so we uh, we wrote a lot of press releases around, you know, 11-year-old CEO's company, you, you know, breaks ground with new web technology or, you know, 11-year-old uh, CEO's companies starting to work with the Canadian government. And I learned a lot about, you know, how do you take all of these things in your head and, and, and build it into an elevator pitch or, or, or how do you like dazzle and wow people with, with things that you haven't built yet in, in 30 minutes? And, and I think I, I use a lot of those things today. <laughs> That's amazing. Now, obviously you had the, uh, 
the acumen, no, in business, you know, at such an early stage, so in your life. So why do you end up, you know, going and studying nanotechnology engineering? Was there anything more challenging that you could find to study or not? I mean, unbelievable. <laughs> the, the story leading up to it was very pragmatic, I, I promise. You know, when... Um... At this time, it was 2001, 2002, you, you needed a really powerful computer to do any of these things, to do 3D rendering, Photoshop, even to, even to play video games. And we were, I was always running out of compute, uh, you know, on the, the CPU, on the video card. Uh, so, uh, you know, I was always asking my dad, hey, when we get this next contract, can I get a faster computer? Can I get a faster CPU? And, um, I, I, you know, I, I ended up getting really into this sort of um, lost art called overclocking, where uh, there's this community of people on the internet where they, um, they learn about the thermals uh, of the processing units, and they try to run them as fast as they can, where they're doing liquid cooling, they're doing water cooling, they're hacking the, these systems to get them to run faster. And I, I sort of got into that. And, and then I realized, wait a minute, to be really good at this, to get all of the processing power you need, uh, you sort of need to understand silicon. Uh, you need to understand silicon and semiconductors. It's like, I want to go study silicon and semiconductors, and then one day I want to go work at Intel or NVIDIA. That would be really cool. So that's sort of how I ended up at, in, you know, in nanotechnology engineering and this, this hope of building uh, faster processors. Well, hey, you, you, you went from there, you know, into something really interesting because you graduated and then all of a sudden, obviously you did a bunch of internships, you know, on robotics and, you know, stuff, stuff that could be applied to what you were studying. But, but you ended up working at Facebook. I mean, you landed in Facebook before the IPO at the Series D, you know, financing. And then you kind of like scaled through the ranks there and landed at Instagram where they were essentially reinventing themselves. And there you were to able to to see, you know, a lot of stuff around, you know, more like what sells, what works, what doesn't. What were some of those things that that you learned while you were there? Because it sounds very interesting. I'm sure that that shaped your way of looking at business and seeing things. Of course. Yeah. The, the first thing I'll say is that it's funny. I ended up working at Facebook. Um you know, because I was sort of fascinated with the space, right? You could see all of this happening with software, social networks, and, and search, but my, my grades were terrible uh, because I was always working on side projects. So I applied to Google and they were like, your grades are too low. You know, I applied to, to Microsoft and they, they had the same sort of view. But Facebook was this, at the time, startup. They were like, as long as you can solve problems, come on down, uh, you know, and, and figure it out. And I'm very, very grateful for that opportunity. Um, it, it's funny, at, at Facebook, I learned a lot about what's, um, what people are interested in and, and ultimately what, what, what matters to people. Because when you, when you have a user base of a billion people, um, almost anything you put in the product works, right? You can, get, uh, you can build a marketplace, you can build a dating app, you can build uh, you know, a, a way to discover restaurants nearby, like, and some percentage of people will always be interested in it. So I think it gets you, to, to be honest, to be a little bit lazy, right? Because almost anything you ship people will use. Um, and, uh, you know, I sort of needed to, to recalibrate, actually, what are people interested in? What's, what's driving this company more than you just put a feature and people play with it? And the, the thing that, that sort of came out to me was the reason Facebook works is that, you know, people uh, just sort of have this, this 
predisposition to want to communicate with each other, right? The, the um, you know, it, it turns out that uh, at the core of it, just being connected to your friends, seeing people that you're attracted to, seeing what other people around you are doing is, is what makes this in gigantic company work. Um, and uh, it's funny, I, I went to, to Instagram and this was uh, during the sort of rebirth of Instagram. You know, it was, it was end of 2015 when... Uh, the company was growing, you know, we had good sort of earnings calls, but inside we knew we were sort of losing market share to Snapchat. You know, we were, uh, young people in America were migrating over to Snapchat. We, we were afraid that we were going to be this product for the olds, you know, and as a result, we, we sort of needed to, to reinvent the company. Uh, and I was, I'm very, I feel very lucky to have been a, a small part of it. You know, there was a, a, a new brand being built, but we were also um, sort of inventing uh, direct messaging at the time. We were inventing the, the sort of augmented reality camera. And, um, you know, I was learning a whole lot about the way people communicate. Uh, and, and this is uh, sort of one of the most interesting topics to me and, and maybe why I got into Tome, because everybody communicates differently and nobody communicates the way that you want them to, right? Which is to say, uh, I had this perspective on what you should use the camera for, how people should use text messages in the product, how they like reshare memes. Uh, and and we, we were always surprised that no one ever used the products the way we wanted them to. So it's... Uh, it, you know, it kind of got me enthusiastic about this this idea of open-ended communication tools, because I think the ones that are most flexible, highest fidelity, most expressive end up being the ones that, that survive. Um, and, uh, you know, it got me thinking sort of in the background, what, how can I build this really powerful, open-ended communication tool for, for ideas? But, you know, more on that later. <laughs> And we'll talk about it in just a little bit. But, uh, you know, it sounds like you were having a good time. So why all of a sudden giving your notice and coming to New York City? What were you thinking? <laughs> well, the, the grass is always greener on the other side, right? And um, I would say one of the things that I absolutely loved about Instagram was that I was learning so much from being around the founders, you know, um, Facebook was this giant company at the time, thousands of people, managers on managers on managers. And Instagram is still small. You would still review ideas with the founders. They would still be like, I like this. I don't like this. Take that. Uh, and because of that, the company was very creative. It moved fast. And, um, you know, I could tell that the uh, the founders were ready to leave. And you know, I, I, I wanted to go. I wanted to be a founder. I wanted to be in that small company world where you're fast and creative. Uh, and as they were leaving, I was thinking I, I should go do something else. Um, you know, and at the time I was uh, looking over at New York thinking, um, Wow, that's like a completely different world, uh, completely different people. It's not it's not run by tech. Uh, I should go experience something new. Yeah, so I uh, I moved to New York. Um, I was looking for a job, and uh, I actually ended up joining a, a startup there, working on on very different subject matter. Hey guys, this episode is brought to you by Dot Tech Domains. I mean, I can tell you one thing, and that is that as a founder, you're always thinking about branding. Now, one thing that is very important in that, you know, is that you need traction, you need to grow, you need to succeed. And having a name that is recognizable on a really amazing domain is the way to go. So that is why it's very important to establish the online presence with a clear and distinguishable 
identity. And you can do that with .tech domains. So .tech domains are the go-to namespace to build anything in tech. They have actually helped many brands in the industry to make a name for themselves, just like onex.tech with their advanced Androids designed to replicate human movements and behaviors. So really, really, really cool stuff and cutting edge. And again, thousands of companies like this, you know, are also taking advantage of .tech domains. So uh, also remember that .tech domains can do the same, you know, for your company. They're also providing a great offer to every single one of you in the DealMakers audience. Is one-year domain for $10 and a five-year domain for $50. So head now to the special URL, which is go.tech slash DealMakers. And that is, again, go.tech forward slash DealMakers. So go get your own domain. So obviously you were doing there, you know, a little bit of uh, safety, no, and uh, and basically on on the app that they were building. But you know, you were not there for long, uh, you know, for long until, you know, you really got the idea, no, of Tom coming coming to mind. So, so what happened there, and also why did you think that it would be a good idea to incubate it under the umbrella of a venture capital firm like Greylock? I learned a lot from uh, for, for, from Citizen, and, and I would say that one of the biggest things I learned was, um, you know, you sort of have to be careful with the markets that you that and the, the problem spaces that that you start with. Uh, you know, Citizen's a really hard company to run. It's uh, the the TAM is small because it it, it really only uh, is engaging in in, in dense cities. Um, the the willingness to pay is sort of challenging uh, when you have a free consumer product that, that's unrelated to, to being productive. Um, and it's just like it's a it's a really hard company to to run. I think that the founder is, is doing an incredible job at seeing it through. But uh, it got me thinking about oh, what's the right problem space. You know, I, I want something sort of geo unrestricted. And I definitely want to work on something that helps people, you know, achieve their goals and be productive such that they'd, they'd pay for it. But, um, you know, I left Citizen and I started to think about this idea. And the backdrop was that this was sort of um, phase one of COVID. And if you remember phase one of COVID in, in New York City, right, uh, we weren't allowed to leave our apartments. You know, we... Um, um, when you go to the grocery store, you end up buying a, a box of Clorox to to sort of wipe off your groceries for like fifty dollars, oh, yeah. and um, you, you you know you you can't really see your friends, right? Or you can't really talk to people, so you're at home watching TV, right? Uh, figuring out like, well, what, what what's going on? Reading on the internet, and um, there's just this like crazy flux of ideas being passed back and forth on the internet, right? Like, should we wear masks? Should we accept this vaccine? You know, should we Clorox our groceries? Uh, should we talk to each other? And, um, you know, it's sort of funny. Uh, when, when, when talking about that period, most people talk about the social media bubble, right? If you're on Twitter and you only see people that believe the same things as you. Um, but I think the other side of it was that we, we don't have great tools to talk about these ideas, right? Um, just to, to say that uh, the, the new generation of folks, that they're not reading long form white papers. And, um, you know, on the other hand, uh, no one's compelled by a 140 character tweet but about a different topic. I was like, oh, this this sucks. You know, someone needs to build a really sort of expressive tool to talk about stuff in our heads. 
um, you know, just as much as we, we were building expressive tools at Instagram to talk about, you know, what you're doing with your day or sharing your face. Um, so I started looking around and like, as someone builds, um, like a, like a visual multimodal sort of take on like Substack or medium or, or Twitter. And I couldn't really find anything. Um, so, you know, I, I decided to, to join uh, Greylock because I had a good friend, Seth, who, who worked there, uh, who, who had just moved to Greenwich Village. And uh, I was like, you know, I'd, I'd like to work from your apartments. Uh, he'll, I don't think he loves this detail, but it was Johnny Depp's old apartment. So it's a very inspiring place to be. Um, and I was like, I want to work on this idea, but I need to think through the go to market and how I would make money. You know, which is to say that um, it's very hard to make money building something like Medium, right? Because uh, as a writer, you want reach and distribution, but you also want to get paid, right? So those things are sort of at odds. Um, and uh, it's like, in the end, I think this could be, you know, a replacement for documents and PowerPoint. But the challenge with that space is it's very hard to go into a company and sell someone a replacement to the office suite, right? So I was like, I need to sort of figure out this, this go-to-market and make sure there's something there. Uh, so I just started to work on it with, uh, with, with Seth and, and with, uh, with Reid Hoffman at Greylock, you know, week over week. <laughs> I mean, that's, a, that's unbelievable. Like being able to work on something with Seth and with Reid Hoffman, the co-founder, I mean, the co-founder of LinkedIn. I mean... That's a, you can't treat that lightly. How, how was it, you know, incubating an idea, you know, with the caliber of individuals like that? So I'd say a lot of it was just being naive. You know, I wasn't thinking about uh, how impressive the person Reed was. I just had this Greylock email address and I was sending him an invi invitation every week being like, hey, can you work out this idea with me? <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and uh, I, I would say for, for the first little while, he was like, sure, okay, you know, I'll, I'll have some some meetings with you. And, uh, you, you know, at, at first, I was starting with the space being like, how has nobody built something here? You know, just to say that I, I think expressing ideas visually is such an, an important thing. And, you know, everything has changed since those tools from, from from the 80s, like PowerPoint and Word, right? We we have mobile devices, you know, we we have data in the cloud. Uh, there's all of this like foundational AI being built. So, you know, why hasn't uh, anyone done anything here? And, um, and, and Reed was always like, uh, I agree that there, there should be something here. I don't think you know what it is, right? <laughs> but he was like, but I think that there's something here and you should explore it. Uh, so, uh, you know, I, I just started to explore week over week and, um, very quickly I realized actually the, I don't need a co-founder that can build this. This is actually a very sort of common trope. I think of startup founders, whenever you meet VCs, they tell you, you need a technical co-founder that can write code. And it's like, no, I think we actually need to think about like, well, what do we want to build? We want to make sure that people love the thing. They're interested in it. I think once we have the product or at least the idea of the product, then we can hire someone to, um, to, to, to sort of build it. So I started looking for like, I would say like a product design sort of founder, uh, co-founder. And, um, you know, I went on all the, the co-founding dates, you know, where you, you meet people on Zoom, you pitch them their, your idea. And uh, eventually I, I met Henry, uh, my, my co-founder. He, he had actually worked with Seth 
um, at, at Facebook. And I'd known of Henry. I mean, everyone sort of knows him at Facebook as this sort of brilliant visionary that's also very stubborn and hard to work with. Uh, you know, and I think that's sort of the, the perfect profile of a co-founder, right? As a, as a founder of a company, everyone's telling you you're wrong. Uh, everyone's telling you that your idea doesn't deserve to exist. So you sort of need to have a, a you know, a degree of stubbornness and, and hubris to sort of push through. Uh, so I, I, I met Henry, we were talking about the idea, felt very natural. And um, at the time, he was like, you know, I'm thinking about this, or do I go take another job? Uh, and um, you know, I think he thought about it for a while. It's like, no, another job sounds terrible compared to, to, to doing this. So then we started having Zoom calls with Reed, with Seth every week, where, you know, Henry was sort of concepting the idea of Tome. You know, he was like drawing it and building prototypes. And we were showing it to people. And, and eventually we, we found people that were like, this seems pretty good. You know, if you guys built this, uh, we would absolutely pay for it. So then, uh, you know, uh, sort of convinced Henry to, to quit his job. You know, he had to have some long conversations with his wife. And, um, okay. and, and then, you know, we started to, uh, to, to look for engineers to hire. And, and then by the time we had found a couple of engineers, we were like, I guess we have to pay these folks. Uh, so <laughs> then we, we decided, <laughs> you know, we, we should maybe raise some money. And that's when, you know, Reed and Seth were like, you know, we think you guys are ready. Uh, you know, how, how much do you need? You, you should go start this. There's no point incubating this any longer. That's amazing. So, so I guess for the people that are listening to get it, what, what ended up being the business model of Tom? How do you guys make money? Ah, good, good question. So we, uh, right now we, we grow using our free product. Anyone can try Tom for free and they have limited functionality. And then if you want to use, um, the AI parts of Tome, uh, you, you, we, we charge you for a pro plan. Um, and that's going really well. We're scaling up monetization. But the, the, the big place that we're going to go to eventually is that I think this is a really powerful enterprise product, you know, where you can train Tomes AI on your data, you know, your Google Drive or your uh, data warehouse. And then we sort of generate content trained on the things important to your company. And that's, that's where we're, we're headed at the moment. Now, going back to the point that you were mentioning earlier, where Reed, you know, is like, hey, guys, I think that uh, it's time to to make this thing fly and to raise some money. How much capital have you guys raised to date? And how has been the experience of going through through that journey? Too? Yeah, so we've raised, uh, I think, 81 million uh, to, to, to this date. Uh, the first round was around six. And, uh, you know, it's it's been an interesting process, um, which is to say that I think um, a lot of founders get tripped up in this, you know, in the sense that it doesn't matter how good your idea is. You're always going to have a bunch of VCs that don't understand your idea. They don't understand where you want to go. They don't believe you. Um, and, um, I think my, my current take on it after having fundraised three or four times is that, um, uh, it's actually more important to find people with the same core beliefs as you than it is to convince someone of something they don't already believe, which is to, to say that you know, we, we have incredible investors who, who we found who actually believe the same thesis as we did around building 
an enterprise company first with a consumer go-to-market, sort of using artificial intelligence, using mobile tech, like hiring consumer people into an enterprise space. Those were all sort of core principles of Tome the company. And, um, you know, if you find like an off-the-shelf enterprise SaaS investor, none of this makes sense to them. They're like, what do you mean? You're you're hiring all of these consumer people to build an enterprise company? That's crazy. You're going to invest a lot in technology? That's also crazy. Or um, you know, I think we, Tome is a very broad product, right? It works for everybody from students to parents making children's stories all the way up to founders making pitch decks. And that's sort of um, um, blasphemy, right? Uh, most early startup people tell you, oh, you should build for one person and do one thing for them really well and scale up. And we we're like, no, that's not an interesting company. You know, we want to build this really powerful tool for lots of people. So we went through our string of rejections, but eventually we, we found people that, that believe the same thing as us. And, uh, and I think it's, it's sort of really nice. They're, they're on the journey and they're aligned. When, 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 do you, when do you know that you have that alignment in place? I think um, it's, it's sort of funny. This is, this is true of recruiting and fundraising, which are maybe the same thing. I, I think there's always this predisposition to want to sell the company in the rosiest way possible, right? You're like, I'm trying to convince this head of engineering to join our company. I need to make it look like we've made further progress. Or, uh, you know, with an investor, you want to make it you know, in instinctively, you want to make it look like you're further along or your thinking is sharper than it really is. But um, I found for the most part, just being really honest about where we are and really honest about the path we're going to take, um, the, the, the people that aren't into that self-select out and, you know, the, the people that you're left with usually uh, are, are really, really aligned. And then in that in that case, I mean, obviously, you know, to all these investors for raising all that money, because Keith, let's face it, you know, the 81 you know million bucks that you guys have raised, you know, it's a lot of zeros. You know, they come obviously with a lot of expectations and obviously, you know, like the, the alignment to, you know, it's an alignment around a vision that you guys have created for this, no? Uh, that compelling future in which you guys are living into. So thinking about that, you know, just for a second here. If you were to go to sleep tonight, Keith, and you wake up in a world where the vision of Tom is fully realized, what does that world look like? You know, one of the things that I uh, I tell at the company all the time is that you know Tom uh, right now is inventing a, a, a very specific communication format. Right, it's this thing that replaces documents and slides and canvas. But um, you know, we're 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 a multi-format company. This is just our first product, and it certainly won't be our last product. When I think about spiritually, what Tome is trying to do, you know, we're we're, we're trying to sort of build um, this really high fidelity communication channel between people, so they can understand each other's ideas. You know, I think in the future, we would want to build something like Neuralink, you know, maybe where you can connect your brain to someone else's brain and completely understand what's on their mind and their ideas. Because um, I think if we can sort of advance understanding of ideas and advance understanding of each other, we can work on things faster. You know, we can go and agree on energy, climate, uh, politics much faster and then just go make progress on them as people. And that's sort of the, th the, the future I'm excited to build. And we just hope that, that our technology plays a, a small part in that. My God, that looks like an exciting future for sure. Now, 
imagine, Keith, that, you know, we, we we're talking about the, the future here, but I want to talk about the past, but doing it with a lens of reflection. You know, let's say I put you into a time machine and I bring you back in time, you know, maybe to that basement where you were, you know, pitching and wandering through forums, you know, with your father, you know, your first uh, stint at, uh, at taking a look at what, you know, building, creating value and extracting value could look like. And let's say you were able to have a sit down with your younger self right there on the spot and give that younger Keith one piece of advice before launching a business. What would that be and why, given what you know now? I would say that maybe the most important thing to, to me is that uh, whether you are selling people on buying a contract with your company or selling people on joining your company or selling investors on fundraising for your company, um, as a CEO, as a founder, uh, you're going to be spending most of your waking life selling people on your company, right? Uh, selling people on you, on your idea, right? And 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 I think that because of that, um, you need to be really, really excited about that idea. And um, and and it's sort of interesting. I think people that are really deeply passionate about the work that they're doing have this unfair advantage. Um, and and I think that that's actually in contrast to a lot of the advice that that, that that startup founders get. You know, a lot of startup founders get this idea that you should choose a really easy problem that nobody else cares about. Um, and then you should do that really well because nobody else cares about it. And you'll take that market and then you'll land and expand and go to the next market and the next market. Um, and that's like pragmatically true. But, uh, you know, you, you have to build a company made of people. Right. And so you need to inspire great people to come and work on this idea with you for it to be worth anything. And and I actually think that you you sort of have this you build the superpower of recruiting um, if you choose to work on something really hard that you're passionate about. And uh, and I actually think that's why some really hard ideas, even though they look hard on the outside, might actually be easier to pull off because you can sort of attract incredible people into it. Wow. That's very, very profound. So, Keith, for the people that are listening, that would love to reach out and say hi. What is the best way for them to do so? Yeah. Uh, so I read all DMs on all communication channels, but I would say, you know, go to tome.app, play with the product. And then, you know, if you're interested, send me a note, Keith at tome.page. Uh, I read every email. Uh, or reach out to me on Twitter. Excited to hear from you. And what is your Twitter handle? I'm uh, Keith Paris. That's it. Easy enough, Keith. Well, hey, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show. It has been an honor to have you with us today. Uh, likewise. Really enjoyed the chat. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, Share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at Alejandro at PantheraAdvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to AlejandroCremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.